are continuing on our um, study in the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you might turn to Acts chapter 9 or your iPhone or your iPad or your Android or whatever it is that you're turning to. Or maybe just have it memorized. So in your mind, turn to Acts chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be continuing on our study. So I just, if, you're, uh, if you've been going to Gateway for a lot of years, and what I'm about to tell you is a little repetitive. But if you haven't, then to give you a little background here... Um, so I became a Christ follower, uh, a Christian as a freshman in high school, and um, up in, years afterward, um, when I would, when people would find out that I'd become a Christian, they were, people would just be really shocked and in disbelief, and I never really understood, like, what that was about, um, I think until I got a little bit older, but when I came to Christ, it felt to me like a fairly natural thing, although looking back now, I can see how, how odd and, and, and strange it was. But especially people who knew me when I was in middle school, because I think that was probably like the, uh, I don't know, maybe the most interesting time of my life before I became a Christian. I went to, lived in Orange County, California, and I went to, it, not making this up, went to Starbucks Junior High. And um, it wasn't Starbucks, it was Starbucks, but it was Starbucks Junior High. And when I was at, in junior high, I would just, if you asked me if I was like a troubled kid, I would say no, I was just like, creative and curious. That's how I would describe it. And so my life in middle school, I had a friend named Brian and we were just both very creative and very curious. And so we just, we, we found lots of creative things to do in middle school. Like we lived um, close enough to Tijuana where we could get our hands on a lot of interesting, uh, on M80s and quarter sticks and cherry bombs. Anyone have any experience with M80s? Quarter, yeah. So you can, like I discovered that um, you could do interesting things. Like if you dropped a quarter stick, if you lit it and dropped it in a public toilet at ju- and flushed it at just the right moment, you could cause an interesting chain reaction. And some people thought I was a terrible kid, but I just thought I was creative and curious. And one time Brian and I got our hands on a couple of tubes of super glue and we went to the vice principal's office and we went to his desk and we super glued everything right where it was. And he thought we were terrible kids, but we just thought we were like creative. We thought that was creative. One time in middle school, we were in the art class. They'd made toothpick sculptures. Anyone ever do that? And we were kind of wondering, like, I wonder how flammable those are. And what we discovered was they were extremely flammable. And so was the part of the school that was, they were right next to. And, and by the time I was a freshman in high school, this had just kind of become a very, <laughs> very curious, uh, very creative um, child. And so when I, when I started high school, um, I had, I had never been to church and I had never read the Bible and I had, we never talked about God in my house. Not ever. Um, hadn't, I, I did not understand the gospel. Um, I didn't know what the cross was all about. I didn't know about the, the grace of God. Um, and then I began high school. And I would tell you back then, I would probably describe it this way. Like, um, my, my best friend, um, just happened to move away right before high school. And so I, and we were moving in the same city, but we just happened to move far enough to where I was going to have to go to uh, in a new district. And I just, so I just happened to start going to high school and I, was, I didn't know anybody at that school or no friends. And I just happened to connect with a guy that I knew from um, grade school and I hadn't seen him for a few years. And he just happened to become a Christian while he was in middle school. And he just happened to have a whole bunch of friends that were Christians. And we just ended up, we just 
just happen to sit together at lunch each day and they would just happen to, you know, break out their Bibles and have Bible studies. And I would just happen to sit there the whole time. I had no idea what was going on. And one day they just happened to want to do some music and I just happened to have my guitar and I didn't know the songs, but I just for some reason happened to think it was okay. I figured out the songs and just began to play with them and they began to share, just kind of happened to share the gospel with me. And at the same time that this was going on, um, there was a guy who just happened to be a good friend of my dad's and was sharing Christ with him. And he just happened to give my dad a book about the gospel. And my dad just happened to decide, I decided he didn't want to have anything to do with it. So he just happened to give it to me. And I just happened to read it, which was really weird because I didn't just happen to do those things. I didn't read anything I didn't have to read, but I did. I just happened to read it. And one night in the middle of the night, I just happened to be in this chapter and it presented the gospel. And I just happened to get on my knees and just happened to give my life to Christ. And I say all that because when I, at the time, I would have told you all this stuff just kind of just, just happened in my life. But looking back now, I'm like, I had no idea what I was doing. Now on that night, when I, when I got on my knees and I asked Christ in my life, I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea really the ramifications for my life. And all of these things that I just thought happened to, you know, line up at the time, I look back now. And every time I think about it, I just, I'm just, because none of those things just happened. As I get older, I realized there is a God who is working, who is planning, who is drawing me to come into his presence and to have a relationship with him. Nothing just happens. I don't know what you think about when you think about how you came to Christ. I don't know if, if, if you think of it the way I do. And the older I get, just the more in awe. Because sometimes I'll think, you know, what if that didn't happen or that didn't happen? Where would I be today? And I don't know when you think about your salvation, if you think maybe you, you could stand up today and go, yeah. When I think of my salvation, I'm just like, whoa. It's just incredible. Maybe some of you, when you think of your salvation, you're just like, oh, you know. Because uh, sometimes people tell me, well, I was, you know, I was raised in a Christian home and, and I always had to go to church and I was in a good youth group. And, you know, I, sometimes people tell me, well, I've just always been a Christian and, you know, you just kind of not like your story. And I, I'll tell you what, nobody just happens to become a Christian. No one. It's never happened. No one just happens to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every relationship with Christ, every person that puts their trust in Christ, every single one is a miracle. Some of you, ha you can look back and see the miracle. Some of you, maybe you don't see it right now, but someday you're going to have a little sit down with God and he's going to tell you all the things he did in your life to bring you into a relationship with him. And you will be like, wow. Salvation is a miracle every single time. We're in this book, the book of Acts, written by a guy named Luke, and it's a, it's a book of extremes. Everything in this book is like, wow, when you read it. It starts off, the thing that kind of kicks off the book is it starts right after the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's a real wow right there. I mean, that's a very extreme situation. Jesus is crucified, and three days later, he rises from the dead. And that is a signal that everything in human history is about to change. 
And then he spends some, some time with the disciples and he gives them a directive. It's not just kind of some direction. It is an extreme kind of, you're going to go out into the world and take the gospel with you everywhere you go. And then he ascends to heaven and the disciples kind of hang out for 10 days, about 120 of them, and they pray. And then something very extreme happens. The Holy Spirit comes down and inhabits these people and they begin to speak in tongues and, and witness the grace of God to strangers that are coming by. And Peter preaches, his first sermon and 3,000 people come to Christ and the church is born and it begins, to, it begins to incubate and cultivate and grow and great things are happening. There's some things that are happening inside that are kind of crazy. There's, a, there's Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember that story. And then there's a, an issue with some widows in the church and some organization that's coming to the church and some of the disciples are thrown into prison and they're threatened. It's kind of an extreme situation and they, they keep sharing Christ. And then a guy named Stephen is preaching one day and the people who hear him are so angry that they drive him out of town and they stone him to death. And on that day, a persecution begins in Jerusalem and it's no longer easy and it's no longer safe and it's no longer comfortable to be a Christian in Jerusalem. And most of the Christians have to run for their lives. Imagine that. Just one day it starts and you have to run. You leave your house, you leave your job, you leave your income and they scatter. And the enemy was hoping that this would stop Christianity, but in fact, it fanned a flame and now it's spreading faster and it's spreading farther than it ever had before and last week, Pastor Matthias told us about a guy named Philip who is now kind of taking his, his evangelistic crusade on the road outside of Jerusalem and he's having a lot of success. And in the middle of all this, there's a guy who's watching it. He watched the church born, he watched the church grow, and he's hating it. He's seething with what he's seen. His name was Saul, and you might know him better as, as a guy later who's known as, as Paul. He is a Jew. He was born a Roman citizen in Tarsus, which becomes important later on in his life. He was raised in Jerusalem. When we first see him in uh, chapter 7 and 8, it says that he's a young man, which means he was somewhere between 24 and 40, which I thought was cool. He's 40 and he's young. That's encouraging to me. He was well-educated. He spoke Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, probably Latin. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee were kind of the, the, the cream of the crop of the Jewish leaders. Um, they were, uh, it was a very exclusive group, um, a very small, tight group, very powerful, very influential in Judaism. This is a group that had soundly rejected Jesus' claim of Messiahship. They were vigorously opposing Christianity, not just kind of, but violently opposing them. And Saul actually believed as a Pharisee that he was earning God's favor by, by pursuing Christians, by hassling them, by persecuting them, by throwing them in prison. He thought somehow that he was getting points with God when they would be put to death. A few weeks ago, Pastor Bill told us a story about Stephen, who was a, a church leader, boldly proclaiming the gospel one day, and this mob drove him out of town, and they stoned him to death. And as it was happening, it's kind of just... Luke just kind of incidentally mentions this, and I, I love this as he puts it. He says that on that day when they had driven him, that is Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. That's the real story, but he kind of adds this because he knows what's going to happen later on. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Just kind of, just kind of adds that in there. And then in chapter 8 it says, And Saul approved of their killing Stephen. And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea 
and Samaria. This is the first mention we have of Saul in scripture. And and if you were to ask a Christian back then what they thought of Saul, they would probably tell you there is a guy who will never become a Christian. It's just inconceivable that this man who is so seething with hatred towards Christianity would ever give his life to Christ. I, and maybe you can think of somebody right now in your life and you're like, that guy or that woman, man, I just can never see them becoming a Christian. Well, that was Saul then and, and, and probably even more so. So I want to follow the story this morning of, of chapter 9 and of Saul. And the, the first thing I want to mention, it's just kind of an obvious thing, but it's a good place to start. Is Saul's a man who had soundly rejected the claims of Christianity, of Jesus Christ. He, did, he wasn't indifferent towards Christianity. Maybe you know some people who are indifferent towards it, or, or maybe they're just kind of ignorant towards it. That would not be Saul. Saul was a man who was completely opposed to Christianity with every fiber of his being. When Stephen was killed for proclaiming Jesus Christ, Saul probably was kind of thinking on that day he'd really won. Like something really great had happened. And now a persecution had started. And he probably thought Christians are going to run and now they're going to hide and now they're going to shut up and we can finally be done with this Christianity thing. But instead, what happened? As the Christians fled, they began to spread Um, the gospel, they got bolder, they got stronger. And now, in what Saul had been hoping would crush Christianity, it actually helped it to spread farther, even faster than it had before. Because up to this point, all the Christians were just more than happy to hang out in Jerusalem and be together and to do church and to have dinner together. But now they're being pushed out, whether they like it or not. And in chapter 9, verse 1, we pick up the story. It says, now, now Saul, as the persecution begins, still breathing threats and murder, all right? So he's not indifferent. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and this is what they're calling um, Christ followers, they're not calling them Christians quite yet. They call it the way. Um, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it says here that he's breathing threats and murder. In other words, this is like his oxygen, all right? This is when he breathes in and breathes out. If you could hear him, you'd hear threats and murder. Like, this is, a, this is the, his passion. It's what got him up in the morning, you know? He'd wake up in the morning and go, take a deep breath and go, oh, today I get to persecute Christians. I might get to kill a Christian today. And, and that was the thing that drove him, that excited him, that got him up in the morning, I don't know if you've ever met anyone like that. You know, it's not just that they don't believe in Jesus. It's that they hate him. It's that they hate the gospel and they hate the church. I was reading a couple weeks ago a quote from a guy named Christopher Hitchens and probably one of the the loudest voices in our generation um, against Christianity, an atheist. In fact, he passed away a few months ago of, of cancer. But when you read Christopher Hitchens, it becomes apparent. He was not a guy who was indifferent towards Christianity. In fact, he described Christianity this way. See if this sounds like the voice of an indifferent person. He said, it's violent, it's irrational, it's intolerant, it's allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry. It's invested in ignorance and hostile to to free inquiry. It's contemptuous of women and it's coercive towards children. 
Kind of sounds like a guy I talked with a little while back who said to me, he said, see, here's the problem. The thing I hate about Christianity. And as soon as you know, when somebody starts a conversation like that, you can kind of, you know where it's going. He's like, the thing I hate about Christianity is I hate grace. I hate that whole Christian thing that you can be a jerk your whole life. And then at the end of your life, you can get scared and give your life to Jesus and you get to go to heaven. And he said, that's the thing I hate about Christianity. He was an indifferent towards Christianity. He wasn't ignorant. He just, he hated it. And that would be Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. Saul believed that, that a right relationship with God was earned. You only got it if you worked for it, if you worked hard at it. To have a right relationship with God required that you kept all the rules. It required that you perform certain rituals and that you lived in a certain way, talked in a certain way, walked in a certain way, dressed in a certain way, lived in a certain way. And if you did, you might be good enough to have a relationship with God. But if you did, it was because of you. It was because of what you did. And then comes along Christianity. And Christianity says, no, actually, that is not true at all. The way you have a right relationship with God is not through works, it's through grace. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he offers you a gift. Your works are like filthy rags. It's like rubbish. That will never please God. When you place your faith in what Jesus did for you, you you can receive the free gift of God. And this infuriates Saul. It really makes him angry. Now, this message of of Christ's forgiveness has now made its way to Damascus. Damascus is a city about 130 miles north. Some believe it may be the oldest existing city in the world. There was about 10,000 Jews living there at the time. And the, the fear was that if Christianity made its way to Damascus and caught on fire there, it would just be able to move in every direction unchecked. So Saul's plan is that he's going to take his anti-Christian campaign that's, that's been just focused in Jerusalem and he's going to take it on the road. Take it 130 miles north and he's got letters that give him the authority to seek out Christians and infiltrate the church and arrest them to literally bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and maybe imprisonment or even worse. Saul's the kind of guy that no one, no one, no one expects to be converted. No one, in fact, believes it so much that when he does, they still don't believe it. Because here's a guy whose opposition to Jesus is personal. He's passionate. It's connected to his self-identity. If he became a Christian, he would lose his power, his privilege, his income, his identity. It would literally be humiliating for him. But none of that really matters when Jesus gets involved in the situation. And Jesus just kind of has a way of sometimes not, you know, he, he just kind of jumps into things. And when he jumps into things, he just tends to change things. And that's what happens in the story. The, Paul's traveling the road to Damascus. It's about a six-day journey by horse. On probably about the fifth or sixth day of the journey around midday, something happens. Jesus steps in to the situation. In verse three, it says this. Now, as he was traveling with some companions, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven. Now, this is in the middle of the day, so it's got to be pretty, pretty bright. It flashed around him and he fell to the ground. This, this comes out of, literally out of the blue. It's really important to understand that, that this is not happening in response to anything that Saul has done. In fact, he'll write later in the Bible that, that he was not reaching out to Jesus His heart was not soft. He had not been uh, inquiring the claims of the gospel. 
He, was, he didn't have a guilty conscience over Stephen. That's not what's happening. It's not like he's getting soft and he's kind of reaching out to Jesus. And now Jesus is like, wow, that's, that's really great, Saul. That's not what happens. It, he is a hard, hard heart at this point. Jesus is pursuing Saul, not out of anything that Saul did, but out of Jesus' sovereign grace and his, his choice. He steps into this situation and a light flashes in the heavens. It's the middle of the day and it, it's so bright that it leaves Saul blind for three days. A lot of people have noted that it's kind of a physical symbolism of a spiritual reality that he is a blind person. And now this physical situation is going to help him understand that. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, it says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's important to understand that in, in to a, a Jew back then, when you would address someone, I kind of almost pictured Jesus might have addressed him like, dude, what is your problem? You know, <laughs> like, why are you doing this? And kind of pointing a finger. But by saying, Saul, Saul, that was a, that was a way that you address someone that you, you had compassion for, someone you loved. It's almost a term of endearment. And so here's Jesus who Saul has been persecuting and yet Jesus, as he addresses him, it's, it's a very loving kind of address. It's, it's strange. And when Saul says to him, Lord, who are you? That's not a confession of faith because when he calls Jesus Lord, he doesn't know who he's talking to yet. All right, Lord is just kind of a respectful term. I think it's just Saul's way of going, you know, I kind of thought I was all that. And now uh, I find myself in a situation in the presence of someone who I think may be more powerful than me. And I think he may be in charge since I'm now blind and he's speaking to me. And I think it's just, it's just kind of his way of going, okay, I'm going to talk nice to you. I don't want to tick you off. You're obviously in charge of the situation. And so he, he talks to Jesus in a respectful manner. And the irony here is that he's on his way to confront Christians. And instead he is confronted by the Christ of Christianity. The pursuer becomes the pursued. The powerful becomes the overpowered. And Jesus says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I love that. See, Saul is not persecuting a religious organization. He's not, he's not persecuting a certain religious thought or a doctrine or a theology. Jesus says, you are persecuting a person. Later, Saul, who becomes Paul, would dis, he would describe the church as the body of Christ. This is not an organization. We are part of a person. We are part of the body of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I take this very personally. A lot of people today love to mock the church and put down the church. Even Christians do it thinking it's cool. You need to think twice about you do, well, before you do that because Jesus very clearly says, man, this is not an organization. This is my body. This belongs to me. I died for this group of people. But it just says it this way. The men who traveled with him stood speechless. And they heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. So it says this, that when the, the light shone that everyone saw, it, but only Saul was blinded and everyone heard kind of an indistinct sound. But Saul only could hear the actual words that Jesus was, was speaking and he could comprehend them. You know, he, he woke up that day thinking he was in charge 
He woke up that day thinking he was setting the agenda. He woke up that day thinking he was righteous. And then Jesus shows up and changes everything, doesn't he? And he kind of resets the situation. And, and this seemingly impossible suddenly becomes reality. And that something is that Saul is a man who now believes in Jesus. Somewhere in the next couple of days, we don't know exactly when, but somewhere in the next three days, everything changes for Saul. I say I'm not sure because the more I read the situation, I'm, I'm not exactly sure when it happened, and I don't know that it's important that we do. But it tells us this. It says, now, now Saul was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor he drank. Now, so this just makes sense. They, his, his buddies lead him to town, and they take him to a house. And I don't really know what happens, but I kind of picture that they take him in the room. This is my take. They take him in the house, and they get him situated and then they, they kind of back out, right? Because something's about to come down and I think they know what's about to come down and they don't want to be a part of what's probably going to happen here. Three days he's blind. Three days he doesn't eat. Three days he prays. Because think about this. Think about how confused and conflicted this man must be, right? Think about it. Suddenly he's starting to realize that, that uh, because we don't know that Jesus said anything else to him except I'm the man <laughs> that you've been persecuting. Now, I need you to just go think about that for a while. You can go to your corner and have a little time out. So now he's there because he knows a lot about Christianity. He's heard he's been pursuing it and persecuting it and studying it. So now here he is and he's on his own. And now suddenly he's, he's blind and he's starting to realize that his entire fundamental understanding of the word of God has been wrong. He begins to understand that his relationship that he thought was solid, in fact, is not. And he's beginning to think that what he thought was true may in fact not be true. And what he thought was a lie may in fact be the reality. And that the claims of Christianity were in fact true. And so he's, he's trying to sort this out. And there's no implication in the passage that anyone helped him with that. God's just like, you know, go in the corner and sit alone for a while and work this out. Now at the same time, it tells us in verse in verse 10, there was a, a disciple at Damascus whose name was Ananias. This is not the same Ananias we talked about a little while back. That guy's like toast. He's off the scene now. And this is a different guy. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And, and he said to him, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to a street called Straight. In fact, there's still a street in Damascus today called Straight. It's called Straight because it's the one street that goes straight through the city. And inquired the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he is seen in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias. That, that would be you. That's you. That's your name. And he's seen you come in and lay your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So here's Ananias and he's in the city and, and Jesus speaks to him and he has this vision. He says, I need you to go to this guy named Saul. And I understand Ananias is like, Saul, Saul, familiar, familiar, familiar. Wait a minute. You're not talking about Saul from Tarsus, right? Because that guy is a loser. That guy is a jerk. In fact, I kind of imagine he begins to kind of wrestle a little bit with God and say, now, God, I know you're loving and you're compassionate, but you might be a little naive because you know, you know, right, who he is? You know what he's done to people? You know he's killed? You know he's persecuted? In fact, one of the prevailing themes among the disciples as they find out about Saul is this. He's lying. This is all an act for him so he can get into the church, find out who the leaders are, and once he infiltrates a church, have them arrested and take them back. 
And Ananias is like a lot of times like, I, yeah, I wouldn't trust him. You know, I mean, I know you're God, you know everything, but you might want to back off on this one. But God prevails and Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And it says, so Ananias departed and just did what God said. He entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, and this is so huge to me. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'll just tell you this. I, I, a week was too long for me to study this passage because there's just so much in here. But I love verse 17 so much. I just think, I just think about what's going on. Here's Saul for three days and he's been alone. And he's been praying and fasting and waiting. And Saul knows that if this plays out the way he suspects it's going to play out, his life is about to change fundamentally. In fact, I kind of picture Saul thinking to himself, I had a pretty good life, and suddenly I have no, I have no idea what my future holds. In fact, I think Saul had good reason to think this. Okay, if this plays out the way I think it is, you know, and, and, and I, what's going to happen is my life as I knew it is over, Right? It's over because when all my friends and my family and the Jews and the leaders find out that, that I become a Christ follower, they will reject me. They will not talk to me anymore. I will be dead to them. Even worse, they may try to make me dead to them. You know, they may seek me out the way I sought other people out. So he's thinking my entire, all of my life, my, my, everything I had is gone. But now here's the other thing that, that he may be thinking about. But I wonder if any Christians will be my friends, you know? I mean, these are people I persecuted. Uh, th th they probably have loved ones that I threw in prison. Um, they may be in living in Damascus because I chased them out of town. They lost their jobs. They lost their families. They lost everything. Who would want to be my friend? And I almost picture Saul just sitting there going, you know, I have no past and I don't know if I have any future. Have you ever been in a situation like that where, you know, just everything got turned upside down and suddenly I think Saul's just thinking to himself, I, I don't know if I have anything. And that to me is why when I was meditating on this passage this week, when I got to the part where Ananias walks in the room and lays his hands and he says, Brother Saul, I, I would just picture at that moment, Saul probably dropped to his knees in tears. Because he suddenly realized he had a family. He had a, a brother. I would just have to imagine that for, for, for Saul, those words were so encouraging. Just brother Saul. For him to think, oh, I do have a place. I do. I do have a future. You know, it made me think about sometimes how how we can come to church on the weekend, how we can walk through the foyer. We could walk right through, right past a Saul or right past somebody who's hurting or right past somebody who's confused. Somebody who, if we would just walk up and, and just shake their hand and just say, hey, brother or hey, sister, how that could just change their day, how that could change their perspective. Or maybe somebody you see tomorrow or maybe somebody at school, but sometimes we can forget the power of words and acceptance. But I would just imagine for Saul, this is so encouraging.
And in verse 18, it says, and, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. In fact, as I read this for you, it's so easy to read these verses and just go, oh yeah, that's really cool, and miss that this is, this is huge. This is, there's just miracle after miracle. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. That's pretty huge. And he got up and he was baptized. That's huge. And he took food and he was strengthened. And now for several days he was with the disciples. Okay, so that's pretty big. They're hanging out with him. And, you know, that at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Three days after his encounter with Jesus, he's welcomed as a brother, which is amazing enough. He receives back his sight, which is probably an encouragement to him that he's on the right track. He's baptized. He's, he's, he publicly identifies himself with Jesus. And it wasn't like we do baptism. It wasn't like on a weekend in a service where it's just Christians and we come up and turn the hot tub on and the bubbles are going and somebody comes in and it's real safe and it's real easy. And it, okay, he would have been baptized and it probably would have been in a public place. And for him to stand up and to be baptized is so huge. It's so radical. I mean, he's basically standing in the water going, hey, everything you know about me was just a big mess, right? Everything I believed was wrong. My passion was misplaced. My accomplishments are worthless. My goals were foolish. My career was a joke. It would be such a humiliating situation for him as other Jews who he knew would walk by and they would think he's lost his mind or we've got to shut him up. It was his way of saying, I'm defecting to the other side. It would be a dangerous thing for him to do. And then he, he begins proclaiming that Jesus is God. And he does it in the synagogue. That's where the, that's where the Jews would gather, right? He didn't come to church on the weekend and take a mic and kind of timidly go in front of, you know, a whole bunch of believers where it's really safe and I'm a believer, you know, and everyone would be like, oh, that's awesome. And he would go to the synagogue where the Jews were, where, where he was going to be hunting down Christians. He goes to that place and he starts proclaiming that Jesus is God. He knows what he's doing. He's standing up in front of people and going, hey, remember me? Remember everything I said about Christianity and everything I did? You got to forget all about that, man. I was a fool. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus died for your sin. And he identifies, he proclaims Jesus Christ. People who saw him, they probably thought that was the most unlikely thing that would ever, of all the people who would ever become a Christian, not Saul. And then Jesus does what he always does when he gets hold of somebody, he redirects Saul's life. I mean, up to that point, Saul set the agenda. Saul did what he thought was best. Saul did what the religious leaders taught. Saul, Saul did what, his, what the rules said to do. That was his life. And now Jesus steps in and now Jesus is going to set the agenda. In fact, listen to what Jesus told Ananias about Saul's future. He says to Ananias, he says, go for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, this isn't happening yet, right? This is, this is new. Uh, we'll talk more about this next week, week with a guy named Cornelius. But this is something new that's going to happen. And, and he'll take it to kings. And he'll take it to the sons of Israel. That is the Jews. And now he says this, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The irony is that Saul's agenda was to make Jesus suffer. 
And now Jesus says, actually, Saul's going to be the one who suffers. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be threatened. He's going to be hunted. He's going to be beaten within inches of his life on several occasions. He's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to be sick. He's going to be in prison. I mean, who wouldn't want to sign up for that, right? Like there's a big old long line of people in front of Saul. Yeah, that's what we want. And not only that, but years later, Saul would write, yeah, it was even worse than I thought. And it was awesome. It was an honor. It was an honor to live for Jesus. But I couldn't help but think how, how different that is than what we hear in most churches today. And as I look at most of, of, the, of the books on the Christian rack today, it's so different. What Paul was called to seems so different than what Christians are called to today and what we hear in the church. Because in the church today, most of what we hear is kind of what we call a moralistic, therapeutic kind of theology. That Jesus came so we would, we would live better lives. And, and that really the gospel is therapeutic. It's all about Jesus coming along and being the great counselor and putting his arm around you and solving all your problems. That, that Christianity is all about self-realization and self-actualization. And it's all about Jesus coming in and saying, so what do you want to do with your life? And how can I, how can I help you? with that, you know, and, and how can I solve all of your problems and, and how, how can I meet all of your wants and, and, and give you good health and wealth and a career and, and how can I help you fulfill the American dream? And a lot of times in churches today, it's just like, well, there's me and Christianity is me plus Jesus, which makes it even better. And Jesus has no goals. Jesus has nothing better to do than to come in and sit down at your feet and say, what can I do for you today? But Paul's conversion was completely the opposite. It involved him surrendering his will to Jesus Christ and to embrace Jesus' agenda. Following Jesus does not exempt us from suffering. In fact, he said the opposite is true. Following Jesus involves putting his agenda first. Following Jesus means obeying his commands. Sometimes that really makes people, sometimes people come up to me and say, I don't like it when you say that. And it, it sounds like you're, you know, like you're nullifying grace. And I, I, but I didn't say it. Jesus said it, that we would obey his commands, that we would embrace his mission, that we would proclaim his gospel, that we would share his love, even with the people we don't love, even with the people we don't like, that we, we would forsake our agenda and our kingdom for his agenda and his kingdom. And that's what Saul was called to. Later on, he would write this to a young man named Timothy. Years later, he would write of his conversion. He would say this, I am, I am the foremost of sinners. He's just saying, I was number one. When you think of all the sinners who have ever lived, I'm number one. Why would he say that? He says this, yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, look at this, because this is an amazing passage. In me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as a, notice this, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, what he's saying is this, for all of you who have ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have to understand, Saul says the reason God saved me was for you. It was an example for you. He's just saying this, if God could forgive me, God can forgive you. I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself, you know, I wonder if God's grace is re really forgives me. 
You know, I mean, because the things I've said and the things I've done, the things I've thought. And I mean, I know God can forgive her or him because they're not as bad as me. But have you ever felt like that? Like, yeah, but I'm not really that good. And I wonder if God's grace really forgives me. Maybe you walked in here this morning feeling guilty, you know, about something you've done. Maybe you've walked in here thinking, I don't know if I'm good enough for God. And Saul just says this, oh, man, if God could save me, I got you beat on every, every count. You can't outsend me. If God can out, if God forgave me, God can forgive you. If God could be patient with me, that's what he says. If God could be patient with me, God can be patient with you. I think he would just encourage us to understand that the grace of God is bigger than your sin. I thought it might be a good way for us to wrap up this message this morning by taking communion together. Communion is a time when we remember as a body what, what Jesus did for us, that our ability to, to talk about the grace of God, to celebrate the forgiveness of God is rooted in an event, in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If you have placed your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you today to join us as we take communion together, the men are going to come forward and uh, they're going to pass out the bread and the cup. And I encourage you to take one and to, to hold them in your hands. And as you do so, a couple of things I want, to, I want to say to you. And the first is this. If you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to understand this. As the guys come forward and you, you, take, you take the bread and you take the cup in your hand. Your ability to do that is a result of a miracle. It's the result of the sovereign work of God in your life. I, we can look at Saul and say, man, that was crazy. That was, that was a miracle that he could be saved. But this morning, as you take that bread and you take that cup, I hope you understand that you are just as much of a miracle as Saul was, as I am. The guys are going to come forward now. They're going to pass out those elements to you. See, one of the things that we have in 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 common with Saul is the fact that in the same way that he had rejected Jesus, that's something we all have in common. The Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, Saul would later put it this way in the book of Romans chapter three. He would say this, no one is righteous. That is, no one on their own could have a right standing with God. Not even one person. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He says, because of sin, none of us sought God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In this passage, Saul brings up something that, that I, have, I have studied and worked through for years. And theologians of the ages have worked through. And that is this idea that, that no one seeks God. That in our sin, we were all spiritually dead. And in our spiritual death, there was no part of us that sought God. As I read the Bible, what it says is no one seeks God. The question I've pondered over the years is, if no one seeks God, then how does anyone find God? And I think the truth is that none of us here this morning are here because of anything we did. None of us can sit up straight this morning and go, well, the reason I'm here and the reason my neighbor isn't is because I'm a little better than me and I'm a little better than they were. And, and I looked for God and I saw, Paul would say that when, 
when he, when, when he came to Christ, it wasn't because he was looking for Jesus. It was because Jesus was looking for him. How does anyone find God when they're not looking for God? I don't really fully understand it because as I read scripture, I see that everyone has a choice as well. How do we reconcile the, the free sovereign grace of God and, and the ability of people to choose God? I, I don't know. All I know is this. If we have faith in Christ, it's a miracle. It's astounding. It's something that we should be in, in awe of. See, the Bible tells us that 2,000 years ago, in the same way that God sought out Saul, he sought out us. When Jesus came down to this earth and was born in a body like ours, he did it because he had you in mind and me in mind and Saul in mind. That's why he came here. And that's why he lived here. And that's why he taught and loved and healed. It's why he went to the cross because he was seeking you. It's why he rose from the dead. It's why he gave the great commission. It's why he was ascended to heaven. It's why he sent the Holy Spirit. It's why at some point in your life, not because of what you did, but because of his great mercy, he sought you out and he invaded your life. And again, I know some of you are probably here this morning thinking, yeah, whenever I think of my salvation, it's like, wow. And maybe some of you are here this morning thinking, no, you know, it's not big of a deal. But the truth is, every single one of us who have come to Christ represent a miraculous story. The last thing I want to tell you is this. If God could save Saul and if God could save you, God can save the people in your life that don't know him yet, that we talk about an oikos at times, right? An oikos is a Greek word. And back in the time of Jesus, the time of Paul, they would use this word oikos. And it just, it's a word that described the loving, influential relationships that you would have with people in your life. And studies today tell us that the average American has anywhere from eight to 15, 16 people in their life with whom we have loving, influential relationships. And the Greeks would have called that your oikos. And all of us have a, an oikos of people that we love. And, and chances are there are some people in your oikos that don't know Jesus. And chances are that there might even be a few people in your oikos that as, as I talked this morning, you kind of thought that kind of sounds like Saul to me. Because that, that person that you know, that you love, that you're related to, your mom or your dad or one of your kids or person you're married to or somebody you work with, you might be thinking, yeah, they're a lot like Saul because I could never, ever, ever imagine them humbling themselves in following Christ, I just can't picture them in the waters of baptism. I absolutely cannot picture them sitting next to me a few months from now taking communion. And I think that Saul would say to you, never, 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 never count God out. Keep praying, keep hoping, keep investing in them, keep sharing with them. Never, never count God out. There is hope as long as they're alive because God is powerful and you never know when he's going to step in. Amen? We'll continue that conversation next week as we look at uh, Peter and, and Cornelius. Well, let me pray for us and then we'll close with the song.